Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3. We'll try to finish up this chapter this morning. We will stand and we will take verses 21 to 23. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 23. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Please be seated. You don't get a period until verse 26. He just keeps going. <laughs> I say that because just trying to set the context, um, it was not very, very easy if, you, if you're unfamiliar with what's going on. Paul, in the middle of controversy, of course, coming primarily from the Jews at this time. Unlearned salvation, unearned salvation is the title of this morning's consideration. That's what the text, I think, uh, yields to us the most. In the Gospel according to John, John talks about Jesus coming to his own, the Jewish people, and that they did not receive him. And remember John himself, a Jew, and he wrote many years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he went on to say, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Well, we're talking about salvation, and it, it, there is no salvation apart from God's plan for salvation, and this irritates the world, a lot of people. And we'll come to some of that as we move forward. We look now at verse, well, before we look at verse 21, we go back one verse to set the context a little bit for us. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Now, you can get a little tripped up with the word law. Well, he's talking about the law of Moses, and he includes the prophets, and the law of Moses was the hub for all that the Jewish people believed in their approach to God and, and their future. Everything was, was centered on Mosaic law. And the prophets came along and enforced much of that. And this is what he's dealing with. He's saying to the, his audience, I'm not deviating from God's word. But God has more to do, and it's already in his word. Moses talked about it. The prophets talked about it. And so, as we come across that word law, remember we're speaking about uh, the Jews' obedience to their Old Testament, especially the parts that Moses gave to them. So now we look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so he's saying we are seeing God's goodness outside of Old Testament rituals, but according to the Old Testament authors. Uh, he's, you know, he's saying, my preaching Christ is the Messiah, and moving past the diets, the Sabbath, the circumcision, all that stuff, this is what was promised. I'm not 
preaching to you anything that's not found in our own Bibles. Obeying the commandments and following the rituals, however, is not enough. It's not enough to be compliant to Moses because you can't be completely compliant to what Moses required. And the rituals won't make up for it. Salvation is received. It is not earned, ever. Adam and Eve could not undo the sin they committed by afterwards obeying God. Yeah, we goof with the whole tree thing, but now we're going to really be obedient, and all that will just be in the past. Well, that's not how it works. You could say the sin was out of the bag. Uh, The world would have maybe like a Pandora's box kind of approach to it. Subsequent obedience does not take away sin. You learn that early on as as a convert to Christ. You have these great ambitions to obey Christ, and the next thing you know, you find yourself in the flesh, committing some act that is unappealing to God, that is actually could be sin. And you you, you huff and puff, and you're going to blow this house down, and it's not going to budge. You're going to be back at it again. Thank God for recurrent grace, the blood of Jesus Christ. Partial compliance will not save anyone. The antidote to the damning power of sin, and all sin has that damning power. The antidote is Jesus Christ. And the gospel is not contrary to the Old Testament scriptures. It fulfills the promises, the messianic promises of the Old Testament scriptures. And there are more promises coming. And they will be fulfilled also. So when Jesus said, now, now I hope, let's, hope I emphasize this just like I want to, just like I feel led to. Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The part that stands out for me at this moment is do not think. Don't think this. It's wrong. I did not come to undo what Moses said. But what Moses said had within it things that I am fulfilling. And so the approach to God through animal sacrifices and rites were wiped out by Jesus Christ. Those rituals were canceled. Colossians 2, Paul writes, speaking of Jesus, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Because the law did nothing but condemn. You're guilty. That's what the law did. Grace has the solution to that. We call it propitiation, theologically. Well, coming back to this, he wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. At no point is he talking about lawlessness. He is talking about the processes of God in saving souls. And as I mentioned, Sabbaths and circumcisions and animal blood sacrifices and diets could never save a soul, and the Jews knew that. Jesus made these obsolete. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13 uses that word. He made them obsolete. Those rites and rituals. He is the fulfillment of what those things promised and illustrated. And in its place, God's grace invites man to trust and to obey. And I started out with John saying he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Well, some of them did. Many of them did. And many of them still do. But never enough people receive Christ. We're singing a song everywhere I go. Somebody's talking about Jesus. Is that still true? 
What are they saying? It was very, I, I found it to be so in the 80s, um, but I was in the workforce then. But if they're not talking about Jesus, um, bring him up. Maybe they need to talk about him. Of course, you bring the light to the situation. And the more you know about Christ and his word, the more ammunition you will be able to spend on the devil's work. You'll, be, you'll know what you're talking about. And the world needs that. Whether they know it or not, they need it. You know, you know somebody who is rendered unconscious from some accident, at that moment, they don't know what they need. They're not conscious. But those who come to help them, they do, uh, in most of the time. So, well, uh, and so God, in his, you know, it's obsolete, the Old Testament rites and rituals. Not the commandment, not the moral codes, we'll come to some of that. In his place, God's grace invites man to trust him and to obey him, which is what repentance is all about. Faith, to trust God, repentance, to side with God, to obey. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. What were his commandments? Well, thou shalt not kill is certainly one of them. Don't steal, don't lie. Yeah, have no other false, no other gods before me. There are, there are commandments in the New Testament. They're inescapable. And they're good. There is actually a line of thought that some have tried to inject into Christianity called antinomianism, which is essentially lawlessness. Well, the Bible rebukes that. Old and New Testament gang up on that one. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so he's saying, as God said through his Prophetic scribes. Men did not write the Bible any more than Belknap Press wrote the memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, which I may read one day. <laughs> uh, they just published his memoirs. He's the author. Well, how come this is a problem all of a sudden when it comes to God? That God is, he's too, but man is big enough to do this, but God is not. Hebrews chapter 5, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Well, he's also the author of judgment to those who don't. Looking unto Jesus, Hebrews 12, the author and finisher of our faith is all about him. And we love it. We love it so. Old Testament law is moral. It is civil. And it was ceremonial. That was what was the law of the prophets. The law of Moses and the prophets, of course, upholding it. Which is something a lot of Christians do not understand. Upholding the scripture. Uh, The sense of entitlement was going to help you inviolate scripture if you're not careful. Uh, And this moral law restrained sin in the individual to the benefit of the individual and others. The moral law was to help people out. The rabbis called it the, the fence of the law. Helped you to not sin. Civil law, it protected men and therefore society from the mischief of men. From the negligence of men. In society, whenever it was upheld. Just a quick one, you know, if you in those in, in, in Israel, the, the, house, the houses had flat rooftops. Well, the law required you put a fence around that roof so no one accidentally falls over. That's just, a, just one of the civil laws. There were many of them. That's just one. But then there were the ceremonial laws on the sacrifices, and, and they were detailed, and they were strict. 
And they educated the people. They reminded the people the cost to deal with sin. So when that temple was offering its morning sacrifices, you could smell the aroma of the animal that was being cooked. And that was a reminder, you're a sinner. And there's a right way and a wrong way to approach God. But your sin's got to be dealt with. It's not ignored by God. And in the evening before you went to bed, now there's another reminder. We're right back where we started when you woke up. You're a sinner. You've got to deal with this. And uh, these things, all the ceremonial law, especially, indicated the need for a greater solution. Messiah would provide that solution. The Jews knew this. In Hebrews, Paul, writing to the Jews, says, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. David knows that as it was in his Psalms. Blessed is the man who God does not impute sin. He takes it away. The animal sacrifices aren't going to do that. But what about God doing that? He made it personal through the life and the death of Jesus of Nazareth. It's almost as though when man sinned, God says, now I'm going to, if you want something done right, you're going to have to do it yourself. And he came down and he died in our place and rose again. And we know the gospel story. And much of Romans, this, this part, is basic Christianity, but there's some, you know, this doctrine in here, what we believe in. And we'll come to some of that. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, who all and on all who believe, well, there's no difference. You see, it's, it's all through Christ, all about him. Faith in Christ made available by the faithfulness of Christ. Grace of Christ offers the solution to sin. And what is sin? God's broken commandment. And what is that? Disrespect to God. What is that? An indication that you're trouble. And if you were to get into heaven that way, heaven wouldn't be heaven very long. Something has to be done about all this. The thing about hell is they've, they've not dealt with their sin. So God dealt with it for them in a different way. By restricting them. From his glory and his presence is what we call heaven. My defects in Christ have nothing to do with my righteousness. And I am so happy about that. Because I am defective. And so are every single one of you. Second Corinthians 5. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ who is God the Son. I love that passage in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Christ took my sin upon him, and the Father did look away. For that moment, there was that abandonment of sin on the sinner, which should have been me. 2 Corinthians, Paul had been talking to God about a, a problem that he's having in his life due to Satan. And we can only speculate exactly what that problem was, and it's not really necessary nor profitable. The fact remains, he had a big problem, and he took it to God. And he said, I took it to God three times. This messenger from hell, Satan, sticking me in my side, with, in my flesh, with this thorn. And then he tells us what God said to him. Essentially leaving the thorn on his side... 
And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Well, Lord, you're going to have a lot of opportunity to show yourself strong with me because I have an abundance of weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I will boast in my infirmities in this sense. I am not denying that I am infirm. I am weak. Christ does not give up on me and my defects have nothing to do with my righteousness because the righteousness of Christ is upon me. Now, there are tenses of, that, of righteousness, is the application, the practice of, and that's not how I'm using it. I mean my standing before God. To be accepted into heaven, I have to have righteousness upon me, and it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is here that God's plan of salvation parts company with every plan devised in the human heart. Here come the objections from all the religions and all the people outside of Christ. The world's false religious systems, no matter how divergent in their beliefs, whether it's a Hindu or a Muslim or some that claim Christ but don't believe in his word, they fall in this category also. They all have one major principle in common. And that is they all insist that salvation can be earned. In fact, they insist it must be earned by man. That man has to do something to merit the favor of God. Whether it is an animal sacrifice, walk upstairs on your knees, put extra money in the plate, do something. Whatever you do, don't trust your salvation to the finished work of of Christ. That's their position. Be it ritual or the deeds of men or combination thereof, they think you've got to do something. True Christianity, because there are counterfeit Christianities and there are counterfeit Christians, but true Christianity cannot be earned. It's received. And so I started out as many as received him and not according to the flesh or the will of men. It's something that God does in people. We all should know this verse and memorize it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anybody should brag. So when God says, by grace you have been saved, that means God has opened an invitation. He's made it available. Faith is the key. I have to activate what God has given to me. And all I have to do is submit to it. In the gospel, deeds do not result in salvation. They result from salvation. We're big on deeds. We're big on the commandments. But they're not going to save your soul. They should be evidences that your soul is saved. It is the outcome of salvation. Uh, quick proof of that is just in the, the thief, the outlaw on the cross. He didn't have any time to do any works. He couldn't put his hands to anything. Literally. He was nailed to a cross. All he could do is what? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he was saved. And with just a couple of hours, he was in heaven. Just like that. To all who, and he continues here in verse 22, to all and on all who believe. Well, if you don't believe, then you won't receive. What is so unfair about that? 
Is it too much to ask? This is illustrated in the story of Naaman. That Assyrian general was, came to the prophet Elisha with his leprosy. He said, hey, I hear you can cleanse people of leprosy. And Elijah says, yeah, yeah, look, I'm busy right now, but go dip in the Jordan seven times. And he closed the door. I'm, I'm sort of caricaturizing it. But essentially, that's what was going on. And Naaman was insulted. He thought he would have to climb some mountain. He'd have to do something. He'd have to earn this cleansing. But he had people who loved him, Naaman did. And they said, what's the big deal? Dip in the Jordan. If it's wrong, you just get a little wet. So he does, and of course, he's, he's cleansed. And he comes back. And he's a different man. Uh, well, I, don't wanna, I would love to spend more time on that, but we've got a lot to do here this morning. But Naaman illustrates the grace of God there in the Old Testament, according to the law and the prophets, to all and on all who believe. So to benefit from the salvation of Christ, we must agree with God about Christ's identity and his work. I hope you're understanding what's going on here. You may be familiar with all that I'm saying because you've been around Christianity a long time. But are you able to articulate these things to a lost soul? At the end of each service, I give you an example of an altar call. So that if you get in front of somebody and they, they want, you can see you've been preaching to them and it's time to save their soul, to lead them into the kingdom. You know how to do it. You have a template. You can use a different one, but you can use that one. You can ask them. You can look them in the eyes. Are you ready to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you ready to repent from your sin? If they say yes, you say, then make this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, and then it goes on. So, as you're listening to this, you say, Oh, you know, I know all this, salvation from Christ. But can you work it? Will God call upon you to share it? After over three decades of Christianity, none of this has grown old to me, and it shouldn't to you either. You don't have to wait three decades. Some of you. Some of you got more than three decades. Well, to all who believe that he alone is the divine Savior. And that is critical. He is not a created being, but he is the creator of being. And if you need some coordinates for that in Scripture, John 1.3, Colossians 1.18, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. We do not need to be faithless as Christians. Nor do we need to be fatalistic or pessimistic with our faith about our salvation. Twelve men were sent into the promised land by the Lord through Moses from the desert of Moab to spy it out. Ten were faithless pessimists. They displeased God by snubbing his word. Yeah, yeah, we heard what you said. We, 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 we reject that. They died in the desert of Moab, as such people always do. Don't be one of them. Trust God's word. If it's not working out the way that you want it to work out, then understand you've got an opportunity to stand face to face with the devil and beat him by not moving away from your faith. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness, famine, or sword? None of these things. Just Christ doesn't come and deliver me from the sword or the famine or whatever problems I may have. He's no less my Savior. 
Hell can't beat that. Didn't work with Job and shouldn't work with us either. Pessimism doesn't serve well the Christian life. You have to take it. And, I, you know, I'm sure there are many churches out there going to tell you that, you know, just put on a happy face, God's going to make it all okay. Tell that to the martyrs as they burned at the stake, holding true to their faith. Tell it to Christ as he went to the cross. Uh, we accept these things in Christ because he's worth it. And where we're going is a lot more important than where we are. For there is no difference, Paul says, between Jew and Gentile. And there's the war right there. That's what he had to deal with in his day. We have stuff to deal with in our day. You know, we look at these people, you know, free Palestine. They know nothing of what they're talking about. Nothing. If we took the Palestinian people out of the Gaza and put them in their neighborhood, they would be crying like a baby. The work that Satan has accomplished in those people is deep. And... Uh, it's a problem in our day to, to tell people, listen, Israel is one of the proofs of God's word being true. And if it's true on that point, and 4011 others, it's true about who you are and where you're going if you don't get this fixed, too. It means something. These are just not you know, little Bible studies that we walk around with. This is reality that we're dealing with, hopefully. And in Paul's day... He was attacked by people saying, well, salvation is for the Jews and of the Jews and only for the Jews. And he says here, no, there's no difference. God does not make distinctions on race. If you, if, if you could just picture standing before the throne of God and God says, oh, you're Jewish? Oh, yes, you'll come in. doesn't matter that you were a mass murderer or anything like that or that you were an idolater. Come in. Well, that's not going to happen. Same with the Gentile. It's... There is no difference with God. Lot. Lot was a Gentile. Well, essentially, as a Hebrew, not a Jew. There's some subtle differences there. He was the nephew of Abraham, the great father of faith in Scripture. And he had two, at least, Gentile sons. And he invited them to escape the ensuing judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. They laughed at him and perished in the flames. The serious stuff. There's no difference. Those were Gentiles. They had a chance to get out. Lot's wife was a Gentile. His daughters, uh, they were all pulled out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, the wife looked back at the old life with desire and she perished in disobedience. Those are strong lessons. And Jesus, what does he say about the whole? What is the summary of the Son of God on that episode? Remember Lot's wife. That's all he said. Remember Lot's wife? You know the story. Don't, don't play dumb. So verse 23 we come to, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And anybody who says they've not sinned is lying at that moment and proving that they have sinned. And they know it. Oh, they're delusional. Which is not a virtue. This verse is headline news for humanity. It could have served as an alternate to the Bible's first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, God could have said, you know what? Rather than give them the details of how we got in this mess, maybe I'll just tell them who they are. He could have done that. It would not have been out of place. Of course, he chose the better way. I'm just making a little suggestion. This summarizes man's problem. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Gentiles as well as Jews. And that's what, Paul, Jews is, that's what Paul is saying. You're all sinners. 
First John chapter one, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Well, if you want to say to God, he's a liar, you have at it. This is for all have sinned, past tense. Fall short of the glory of God, present tense. Ongoing sin, the practice of sin. We're not only sinners by nature, we're sinners by practice. By this, he does not mean that we all sin equally, but we all sin enough. Enough to be damned by a holy God. Now, I, we talk about this you know, present tense sin, this ongoing recurring sin needing recurrent grace. See, those who don't understand the grace of God will tell, for instance, if you're driving and you have an episode of road rage and uh, you drive off the road and you hit a pole and die as a Christian, you didn't get a chance to say, oh, forgive me, so now you're going to hell on a technicality. You missed the password. That's a silly doctrine. That's a bad doctrine. Recurring grace says, no condemnation has overtaken you except such as, well, that's, wait a minute, I'm mixing verses. No condemnation has overtaken you. And, and that is the gospel. And uh, so I, it, it's not dependent on my work of remembering the password. It's dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ and my heart. God looks at the heart, not the outside. An old-time, Old Testament lesson that we love so much because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and who can know it? Well, God says, I know it. I test the heart. And if the righteousness of Christ is on that heart, that's what I need to happen for the soul to be saved. I need them to come face to face with their guilt and my grace and make a choice. And that's our message. So all fall short of the glory of God. Past tense, perpetual. Just like your salvation is perpetual in Christ. Unless you renounce him. Which, who would do that? Well, Judas Iscariot would. Jesus alone is sinless. And no one has the right to arbitrarily nominate another one to be sinless also. This is part of our salvation message. Not anyone could die for sinners. Anyone who tells you that Jesus is not the only sinless one makes himself an enemy of God's word. Because that is not what the scriptures teach at all. It says all have sinned. And the only one in scripture that says remain sinless is the Son of God, born of a virgin. There were no illusions about being sinless with Moses. And the Gospels flatters no one. No one is flattered by the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Man is first condemned. Now we come to verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now justified means, um, it doesn't mean to make one righteous, incidentally, but to count one as righteous. If you had to wait to be made righteous, to behave righteously, to be saved, nobody would be saved. Justification is not God changing us, but God changing our relationship with Him because of Jesus Christ. And so we're not only set free from the condemnation upon us as sinners, but we're cleared of all charges, payment made by Christ. So, summarizing God's work for sinners... Uh, is, is being justified. Here's an, uh, maybe another example. 
Those who crucified Christ, those who nailed the spikes into him, they were forgiven for that act, but they weren't justified. To be justified, they had to come to Christ according to the scriptures, like the Ethiopian eunuch did, like the apostles did. Like the Gentiles who Peter was preaching to in Acts chapter 10. They were forgiven of the crucifixion, but they had other sins on them. God, When Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that did not justify them. That um, bought them time. And we're to consider these things. We look at these things and say, yeah, I can see how this works and how it applies when I'm preaching Christ to people who are verbally crucifying him. I can, I can say, Father, in front of them, right to their face, you do not know what you're doing, and may God forgive you. But you're not justified with that alone. Freely, without charge, he, he says freely, which means without charge. Salvation is free or not at all. You, you know, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. The religion of the world thinks you've got to earn your salvation. Your salvation in Christ is free or not at all. You have to pay nothing for it. You just receive it. But only in Christ. And uh, the flesh doesn't like this because the flesh wants to feel... Have you ever done something good for somebody and they insist on paying you back? It could be something petty and you almost get the feeling like, man, what is it? You, you think I'm going like, to you know, uh, ruin your credit if you don't... Why are you so insistent? Why can't you just receive the gift? Why can't you just say thank you? Uh, now, there are sometimes, of course, you, you want to be paid back, but there, or it's okay, but there are other times you just receive the gift. Uh, by his great, imagine, you know, as a pastor, sometimes people give me things, and um, if I had to pay them all back, I'd be broke. I mean, it just wouldn't work. So I just have learned to receive the gift, and I've opened a registry up at, uh, no, I have not. I'm always, I always get a little like, oh, Lord, come on, I don't deserve this. Uh, and it's always very humbling. Um, and, but anyway, it's sort of like the priests receiving the offerings, the meat that they were able to, to partake in. Anyway, I do digress. By his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, the only thing necessary for justification is a changed heart. God looks at the heart. It's what we believe before how we behave. That's how it is. God classifies our faith as righteousness in this sense. There's the righteous behavior and there's a righteous standing. We're talking about a righteous standing before God. Because righteousness means right. To be right with God. It's going to have to come from my heart. Now to do right things as a result of that is another story. It's not like faith. There's saving faith when I give my life to Christ. I trust him. Then there is serving faith when I'm trusting him to do the work that he's called me to do. So there are different uh, <clears throat> tenses or forms of these things, and they're illustrated clearly in Scripture in perfect context. Faith submits to truth. Saving faith does. Serving faith acts on that truth. The very thing the devil and lost souls do not do is submit to the truth of Christ, and that damns the soul. Redemption that he talks about here is not only that I have been bought back, but restored into fellowship with God, 
and free. I am freed. We are damned because of who we are, sinners. We are saved because of who Christ is, the sinless one. Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He's just saying the same thing in another form. And he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the, the New Testament says things about Jesus that you can only say about a divine being. You cannot say about... Could you imagine Peter saying, believe on me? Can you imagine Paul saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Can you imagine an angel? No, you cannot. You know that'd be blasphemous. The one that says that has to be equal with the Father, just as we are told in Philippians 2 and other places. Well, we continue to verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. God the Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. Now, this is the Athanasian Creed. Athanasius was a man there in the 4th century who stood up against everybody when the, the, the Arian heresy, which is a form of Jehovah Witness t- teaching on Christ, was overtaking Christianity. And he was told, Athanasius, he said, you know, it's you against the world, Athanasius. Then he says, then it'll be me against the world. And he upheld the Trinity. And this comes out of his upholding that Trinity. He said, God the Son is of the Father alone. Not made, not created, but begotten. Well, Hebrew says he's the expressed image of God. Not, it does not say that he is the expressed creation of God. He is the image of God. You know how deep that is? Well, taught from Zechariah, John 16, 27, verse 28, that Jesus says it right, Jesus says it right out, extending from the Father as a branch from the tree. That's the incarnation of Christ, but there's so much more to Jesus than his incarnation. Then he continued, Athanasius, he goes now, he talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, God, God the Holy Spirit, of the Father and of the Son, neither made, created, or begotten, but proceeding, proceeding from the Godhead. And so when we look at verse 25, whom God has set forth, this is who we're talking about. Not three gods, but one God, three distinct coexisting persons. The members of the Trinity are not separate persons as the shack, if you fell for that, uh, would, would have you, you see it. Uh, they are only distinct persons in one divine nature. Now, that's a lot of information. And it's all backed up in New Testament scripture and Old Testament scripture. He says, of whom God sent forth as a propitiation. He's talking about Jesus now. This is a theological term. It's found, John uses it a lot in his letter, relatively speaking to how much he wrote there in that letter. In the regular usage of the word propitiation, it means to appease, but it does not mean that theologically. Theologically, it is satisfaction made for sinners through sacrifice. That Greek word for propitiation here, helasterion, now remember that, It'll get you $5 off at the gas pump. You just go in there and you tell them. 
I, I try not to do, say these words because really, what, unless you're in front of it studying, it really doesn't have much difference. But anyway, I said it. It occurs only here and in Hebrews chapter 9. But there, the translators rightfully translated the word in Hebrews 9 according to its context and its meaning. And so I'm going to read that to you. Hebrews 9, 5. And above, uh, above it, were the cher- speaking of the Ark of the Covenant, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. It's the same Hebrew word. But instead of being translated overshadowing a propitiation, they said overshadowing the mercy seat. Well, why? Because the word, the Greek word, the meaning is merciful. The mercy of God with sacrifice. And the mercy seat spoke of that. And Paul, in context, in writing the Hebrew in that ninth chapter, he's speaking about the mercy seat of God and the propitiation for sins. God dealing with sin, satisfying the requirement of holiness through Jesus Christ. And so if we only translate it mercy seat here in Romans 3, instead of propitiation, we miss the blood sacrifice. We just then we're focused on the mercy seat of Christ. Yes, it is the mercy seat of Christ, but at the cost of blood, the sacrifice. And so the translators, again, doing, I, I think, in these two cases, just an outstanding job. Some translations use mercy seat here where, instead of propitiation. Now, you may be saying, I lost you at propitiation. <laughs> so suffice it to say, it is the mercy of God in dealing with our sin. That's what it is. And that's what the temple spoke to the Jew. God is not finished with sin. And it is about your salvation and your righteousness and his love. The temple spoke all these things to the people. No one else had that temple, especially in the wilderness. Well, uh, Leviticus 16, 15 and Revelation 5, 9, if you compare those two, you'll get a, a, a closer look at what is being said here. Because, you know, when the priest went in at the Day of Atonement, he took the blood of a sacrificed goat and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat uh, for the, on behalf of the people. Well, what does a goat really speak of to us in the New Testament? Our fallen nature. The sheep and the goats. And Christ has dealt with that fallen nature. And so, by his blood, it tells us here... Uh, That is his death. There's no power in the physical blood of Christ. If there were, the Roman soldiers would have been instantly saved when they crucified him or when they were whipping him. We don't believe in magic. It is the death of Christ, the will of God to be sacrificed. And we refer to it as the blood of Christ because it was a bloody affair. But it, it, it goes deeper than just what they did to him on the cross. It goes to him saying, no one takes my life. I lay it down. And if he did not give up the spirit, he would not have died. Because he's God the Son. But he did give up the spirit. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. What if he didn't say that? He did say it. This is my blood in the new covenant. The new testament. Covenant and testament. Same word. The cost of Jesus. That's what is meant by his blood. It costs God suffering to bring us into heaven, says through faith. Well, faith becomes saving faith when it is placed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, to contrast 
the power of this, to catch the power of the force of this, if you contrast the faithful with the faithless, I think the force of the contrast becomes clear. Uh, you, you contrast a, a Daniel, uh, a man like Daniel, with a man like Balaam, and the contrast is clear. Daniel was a sinner too, but he loved God. Well, Balaam was a sinner too, but he loved money way more than God and uh, turned against the will of God by turning against the people of God. To demonstrate, Paul says here in verse 25, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So um, God didn't wipe man out. That's what he says, and God is patient. And uh, he, he said this in Acts chapter 17. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, to draw close to God through Christ. Verse 26, to demonstrate at the, pres- at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Well, righteousness in this tense, in this sense, is a relative term. It assumes the existence of other people. Um, you know, if you're the only one on an island, you, there's no righteous deeds. There's nobody to be forgiving to, nobody to help out. Uh, you still need that righteousness before God, but uh, it, it is a relative term. And uh, so it's a word of relationship, having a relationship with God. God is always right. He is always good. And uh, I know I'm repeating some of this. Well, because Paul is repeating some of this because it needs to be driven home. Because after all of this, you would think nowhere in Christendom would anybody be talking about earning their salvation. Yet you have whole denominations that practice this. You can just go, you know, uh, you can buy your salvation. A papal bull will do it for you. I'll restrain myself from further comment on that. That he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You don't need to buy indulgences. Uh, This cannot be overemphasized. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith, not works, in Jesus. Cannot overemphasize it. Verse 27. Oh, we made it. Let's see if we can finish this. Because next Sunday is Christmas Eve. And uh, I'm expecting a lot of gifts from you because it's all about me. Well, (laughs) where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the faith, by the law of faith. And so again, dealing with the Jews, he goes back to his question and answer format. God met the terms of justice by dying on a cross is what he is saying. Nobody can brag about achieving salvation right there. Where is the boasting then? It's rhetorical. There is none. He says, actually, it's excluded. By what law of works? What terms will a man declare himself righteous before God is what he is asking. If I could earn my salvation, I could lose it. I could mess it up. Well, I worked hard to get it. Well, you, yes, we understand that, that line of reasoning or thought, even if it may be irrational before God. Such is a merit-based system. You can get merits, and then you can get demerits. And uh, you, you go backwards in that sense. Earn righteousness would soon be earned unrighteousness. 
So, you know, okay, God, I've, 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 I've earned it. I've walked up these steps on my knees and saying all these prayers. And so now you have to be happy with me. And then I go out and I, I, I commit some sin, even if it's minor. And I've just erased it all by that system. That's how it would work. So God doesn't work by that system. He says, no, but by the law of faith. And there he drives it home again. There is no boasting. It's excluded. By what law, what works will we save? It is by faith. Jesus said, this is the work. Faith. Trust me. Believe in me. I am the solution. Uh, Jude 24. He is able to present you faultless before the presence of his throne with exceeding joy. It's not like God says, you know, I died for you. It was really hard. But okay, come in. It's an exceeding joy to this. It's almost as though the angels are saying to us when when one sinner repents... It's almost as if they're saying, do you know how many people refuse to do what you just did? We're so happy you said yes. It is right there in front of you and you received it. And we receive it and you say, well, how am I going to tell my co-workers? How am I going to tell my fellow students about Christ? They mock him. They, they, they line up with the world. Well, the first step is to build up your faith in Christ and your knowledge of his word and let him do the rest. Don't go jamming the gospel down anybody's throat. Cast not pearl before swine, lest they turn and trample you underfoot. That means they're not ready. They can't receive it. And you don't know who those people are. You're not that smart. You need God to do this. And if he's not doing it, then there's nothing to be said. Paul went to places, and he passed right by, uh, and, and there was... No mention of him preaching the gospel. No doors were open. Verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified... By faith, apart from the deeds of the law. Um, Ability to believe versus ability to behave. Verse 29, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So that's telling us. See, this is what he's fighting. The Jews that were, some Jews were saying, you can't bring Gentiles into salvation unless you make them Jewish. And there were Gentiles and Jews that were in the church that were buying into this nonsense. Every generation of Christianity has got to deal with something. And you may be dealing with one type of heresy on the East Coast. And then in the Midwest is another type of heresy that's running wild. And then you get further west and everything's a mess. So just, uh, you know, I, I don't like it. I don't like to have to, but it's necessary. It's what war is all about. doing what you do not like because it is worth it. Verse 29, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So his hypothetical conversation is very informative. Verse 30, Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And this is where the, the, we have a monotheistic trinity, you know, and, and the, the, this is what trips up a lot of people. Uh, the first century church, the age of the apostles, they needed to guard against polytheism when they taught the trinity. They could not come out and say, you know, God is the Father, the Son is the Father, the Holy Spirit is the Father, without risking someone saying, so wait a minute, you guys worship three different gods. And so it's, it's a pretty much presented by the actions, demonstrating the, the attributes of Christ matched the Father. The attributes of the Holy Spirit matched the Son and the Father. And in those teachings is the Trinity. 
So presenting the Trinity, uh, they were peculiarly challenged, and they did it well. Uh, Jesus is clearly treated as God and worshipped by the apostle. He says, who would justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So Jews and Gentiles would be saved by Christ, regardless of ethnicity. Verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. The law being what Moses was preaching. Moses said, there's one coming after me. There's a prophet coming after me. Listen to him. And if you don't listen to him, the consequences are severe. And he's talking about the Messiah, who is the Christ. The morals remain. Paul does not mean that the Jews could completely dismiss their law. Oh, you're a Christian now? You don't have to, uh, you know, you, you follow the, uh, the, you can steal, you can lie. No, he's not saying that. What he is saying is you have to apply the scriptures to the messianic work of Christ in faith to be right with God according to the law of Moses. So the law is not the gospel. The law of Moses is not the gospel. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not lawless. And uh, that's an antinomian heresy that was around years ago. It's still around every now and then. I think mostly up, up in the northeast up the coast, uh, you might still find pockets of it. Certainly not, he says. Don't be ridiculous. On the contrary, we establish the law. So Paul condemns lawlessness. And uh, he says, you know, Christ did not die so people could feel good about sin. Uh, even the, So I want to close with this. This verse from the Old Testament. We mentioned, Paul mentioned passing over our sins, but it would have taken too much time to just really open that up. So I could squeeze it in here just a little bit. When it was time for, the whole, for God to pass over the house in judgment, when he was emancipating the Jews from Egyptian slavery, and he told them to put blood on the lentil and the post of the door, Exodus 12, the lamb, the blood of the lamb, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it, where they had that sacrificial meal. But no blood was to be sprinkled on the threshold, on the floor. Why not? Wouldn't that make it complete, you know, encase the house? It's because there was to be no trampling of the blood. What does that mean in New Testament language? And I'm closing with this. Hebrews 10. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So if you said, you know, I don't believe in the first commandment, you should have no other gods before me, well, you're going to be judged and condemned on that one. But then he says, comparatively, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. So the blood of Christ, you can still trample on it, but not without great consequence. How do you not trample on the blood of Christ? You follow the guidelines of Scripture. You have it on the lentil and on the doorposts. You come to Christ according to his instructions. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, 
And so we are going to close, and I'm going to invite anyone who may be listening and who has not given their life to Christ to give their life to Christ. The alternative being, you continue to trample the blood of Christ by your rejection. Our Father, we thank you for your scripture as always. Where would we be without the words that you have preserved for us? If there is anyone here this morning or watching online and you have never opened your heart to Christ, you have an opportunity now to open your heart to receive him or you can deny the opportunity and continue continue to trample the blood of Christ through your rejection. It is your choice. If you would like to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've got to say it. You've got to mean it. You say, Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner, that I have broken your law. And I ask you to forgive me. I come to you. There is no one else who is powerful enough or good enough to die in my place as a sinner, to demonstrate his power by rising again from the dead, and who sits at the right hand of the throne of glory in heaven. I give my life to you right here, right now, and I ask that from this day forward, you would be not only the one who saves my soul from a judgment to come because of my sin, but also the one who rules over my life as my Lord, that you would be from this day forward my Lord and Savior. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning in earnest, may they be unashamed of it, and may they jump at the invitation to share their confession of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.